Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. This is Radio Free Brooklyn. And this is Young Persons Radio! I don't usually wake up this early. Okay. Caller, what is so important? <laughs> I guess it's a show where you talk to people who are hit by lightning. Hey, Colby. It's Tim Keck. What's a bitch? This is Mary Coolahan. Colby, Colby, it's Jason Trackerberg with a very quick phone call. It's me, Jean Craighead George. It's Monica. Yay. Yay. Can I tell you a pigeon story? He's raising baby pigeons in a pasta colander. Pigeon, is that you? There's enough evidence on here to lock her away for a long time. Oh, I guess this is a maniac show for birds. Stupid, it's childish, and I would never do that to you. Lower East Simon. What kind of art were you doing at the karate school? The art of the empty hands. I take care of feral cats. This is meatball. It's in the house. (laughs) Caller, it lift me out of this slump. Caller! I'm not a fan of the show. I've never heard of it before. Are you back to number one yet? I'm feeling real cool. Get me named a living landmark for New York. I gotta shoot on Rob Shapiro real quick. He's a hack. His fans are morons. I'm a big fan of your radio show, but off the air, you're, you're kind of a terrible person. You just sound like a bunch of dorks. I yeah, truly can't two. tell if everyone's making fun of us. Is this what this feels this like is, every week? Yeah. Come in. Oh my god! Oh my god! It's Colby. You have a nasty habit of surviving. Well, you know what they say about the fittest? My guy. Not even close. Not even close to my guy. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Young Persons Radio, your Sunday morning comedy talk program right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. And I am, as always, your host, Colby Smith. And we are here with you until 11 a.m., at which point we will be followed by points of order. They were out last week, and uh, they are back in today. I'm excited to hear their take on the NBA Finals, uh, as if there's any take to be had on a series that was completely a shutout <laughs> uh after them at noon there's the brooklyn conversation with rosie and after that at 1 p.m there is objection to the rule radio free brooklyn's answer to the sunday morning political talk show circuit and we have talk shows every hour on the hour until 11 p.m tonight some are pre-recorded many are live many give you the chance to interact as do we uh but not today we have a very exciting show for you today uh we are digging out an episode uh, uh, from the Radio Free Brooklyn archives, you know, a big part of what, uh, what I do here on the station. So I see myself as, as kind of a historian for the station as well. Uh, and, you know, going through the archives of the station's many forms throughout the years is a, a great project that we've undertaken over the last, you know, six or so months of the show. And uh, um, 
it's been a really rewarding process for me, and we're going to do that again today with another classic episode of uh, a book, if you please, uh, Radio Free Brooklyn's literary talk show um, in a previous life. Uh, but before that, there are a couple things I need to tell you. Lady Gaga, Beyonce, Britney Spears, Madonna. Some of the biggest names in the music industry and the reigning queens of pop come out to Diva Night on Monday, June 11th from 9 to 11 p.m. at Pine Box Rock Shop in Bushwick to celebrate those artists and all of your favorite women in pop music. This is a free event, so come and tell your friends. Diva Night will be hosted by Evan Bieber of the Radio Free Brooklyn show Pop Rocks and his co-host, Edward. If you feel like bringing out your inner diva, you can even come dressed up as your favorite pop queen. It will be a fun night of dancing and singing and uh, to some of the biggest names in pop music. It's also a great way to start off Pride Month. I'll see you Monday, June 11th from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. at Pine Box Rock Shop in Bushwick for Diva Night. That's off the Morgan Stop, folks. Uh, and uh, a couple other things, if you are listening to this program... You have many ways to do so, to listen to this program and every other program we have here on the station by downloading the new Radio Free Brooklyn app, which is available for iOS and Android. And it's, uh, every, anywhere that you can download apps, the Google Play Store, for example, or iTunes, or any of that stuff, that you can find the Radio Free Brooklyn app there. You should also go to our website, RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, and then add a backslash and then type the word newsletter to sign up for our newsletter. It's the best way to keep up to date with new programming, upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events such as Diva Night, as well as interviews, ticket giveaways, special offers on Radio Free Brooklyn swag, and more. All that stuff and more. And as always, Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 charitable organization. You can donate to us if you like this program or any of the other things that we have going on. You can find out how to give at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. That's RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Now, before we get into the uh, the archived episode, I want to thank everybody for bearing with us through the chaos that ensued last week in the Top 10 Songs of Your Lifetime episode. Um, Tim Keck, who has become the unofficial archivist for Young Persons Radio, has made, a, has made a spreadsheet of every song that was mentioned in that hour, and I believe the title is up to 50 songs. And I really... I, so, you know, we can't do it this week because you know the show that we're about to play is uh, is is lengthy. But in the future, by which I mean probably next week, we'll have whittled that down that list down to a the definitive list of the ten greatest songs of our lifetime, based on based on that list. So thanks, a big thanks to Tim for uh, for putting that together. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show. A big thing that I do uh, for the station is combing through its archives and listening to, you know, it's, this is a, it's a storied history, Radio Free Brooklyn. I mean, it's, it's been a fixture of New York society for, for 50 years. And back in February, we uncovered a show called uh, A Book, If You Please, Radio Free Brooklyn's Literary Radio Hour, which had its, uh, its heyday in the 1970s, you know, covering uh, the literary scene of that moment, you know, Truman Capote. Norman Mailer, Gore Vidal, this, this, this uh, 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 slew of authors. Uh, and, uh, you know, as, as, our, as our work with the show has gone on, 
We've uh, you go, gone through the years. That show was around for like you know twenty odd years, something like that, and uh, continued in that mold as a literary talk show uh, uh, until until you know well through the late nineties. And this is one from sort of the end of its run um, from nineteen ninety nine. Uh, so this is without further ado, I'm going to take you to a, a classic episode of a book of you please from nineteen ninety nine. Again, this is Young Persons Radio with Colby Smith here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Let's um, let's go to that episode now, shall we? Brooklyn listeners, and welcome to another thrilling edition of A Book, If You Please, the Literary Radio Hour slash Suicide Rationalization Hotline. I'm your host, Jonathan Spaulding. We have a terrific show planned for you tonight. It will be pleasant for your ears, stimulating to your brain, and just the right temperature if you seep it twice. But first, we will begin, as we always do, with a roundup of the most up-to-date literary news. Tom Wolfe, the author of The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, as well as its sequel, The Ground-Type Gatorade Basic Exam, was photographed at Max's Kansas City here in New York City, along with the author Philip Roth. Roth is best known for the novel, Sabbath, the novel Sabbath's Theater, as well as its recent follow-up, Saturday Night Live. Elsewhere, Ernest Hemingway's corpse was embalmed today at the request of his wife, Mary Welsh, who demanded she be able to put it up in her parlor. Upon exhumation, it was discovered that the body was, in fact, a counterfeit. Experts, experts are still attempting to determine Papa's whereabouts, with the most promising lead indicating that his head hangs above the fireplace in an elephant's home, as speculated by droll New Yorker cartoonist Tufty Tollins. In other news, Gore Vidal has fucked his 2,000th pool boy, and much like popular hamburger chain McDonald's, he has erected a golden arch outside his mansion on the Amalfi Coast with the inscription, 2,000 served and counting. A small party was held to mark the occasion on one of Vidal's giant boats. And finally, we come to the author John Foles, best known for a book called The French Lieutenant's Woman, which I swear is real and you can find in the library. Foles recently completed a literary excavation of sorts, in which a, uh, in a, a Mississippi plantation house, he uncovered new correspondences written by the late William Faulkner. In perhaps the most striking letter, Faulkner refers to the work of F. Scott Fitzgerald as, quote, pretty good for a woman, end quote. The letters are now on display as part of the Reginald Small Fawcett collection at Princeton's Heating, Ventilation, and Air Conditioning School. And, of course, Joan Didion was once again spotted wearing sweatpants to the Walgreens. But again, that's hardly news. <laughs> Welcome back to A Book, if you please. Radio Free Brooklyn's Literary Radio Hour. I'm your host, Jonathan Spaulding. We come now to the meat of the program. My guest today is the author Hank Redenbacher, who will begin with a reading from his new novel. In those days, 
Before the war came to Santiago and the ghosts that trailed my steps through the alleyways were of fathers, not of soldiers, I took a lover in the springtime. She would come to me at midnight lingering in the vestibule with a bag of Turkish locum and eyes full of a sorrow transmuted by age and distance into a capacity for the doldrums of love that knew no satiation. We spent hours in the profound solitude of intercourse, two prisoners in opposite cells, yearning not for the flesh of each other, but for the people lost to us long ago. It was cool how she touched my dongle so much. When dawn finally breached the windows, she would tumble into a restless sleep. I would sit on the balustrade and look over the cityscape. I would gaze out on this town full of vibrant life and pulsing secrets and think about how cool it was that soon we'd be getting a Chili's. You can get a lot of chicken tenders for not a lot of legal tender. Plus, they have to be nice to you. It's basically the rules. That was my guest Hank Redenbacher reading from his new novel. Now, in the 1960s and 70s, a widespread literary trend toward romanticism arose in reaction to the modernist prose of earlier in the century. The Latin American boom brought writers like Julio Cortazar and Gabriel Garcia Marquette to the cultural forefront, while European authors like Mila Kundera and Graham Greene came to prominence, reflecting on the emotional legacy of a post-war world. A certain magical realism became a profound international literary force. But Mr. Redenbacher, only you seem to be directly appropriating them into, say, an Anglo-American romantic literature. And to be frank, that tendency was widely lambasted in literary circles. Many, if not most, American literary critics called it, quote, maybe not specifically racist, but definitely bad. Writers like Jose Pacheco called you a nomad soul drifted past the limitness of remembering, and also later, a bitch old man. Do you have anything you'd like to say in response to these critics? Well, well you know, the thing about Jose Pacheco, his main book isn't even very long. And Stacy's mom still told that same story in, in three minutes. Mm. It, it, uh, there seems to be this overall consensus that I'm just some kind of senior citizen plagued by dementia misremembering my own life mm. and in the process diluting it with meandering asides that go nowhere and mean nothing but mm-hmm. I, 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 that's not the the, the the content of my work it's a it's a it's a it's a search of lost time it's mm. a it's a reflection on the profundity of remembrance uh regret mm. and nostalgia of course i mean um, Oh, please go no, on. No, no. I, I was just wondering, um, the was there an altercation? I mean, in what context did he refer to you as a bitch old man? Oh, I actually I stepped on the back of his heel while we were in a buffet line at the Faulkner Pen Awards in 1974. So it wasn't it wasn't in response to your work at all. In fact, I think it was flavored with that. Oh, of course, yeah. I think he read it and maybe was thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But it was, I, I stepped on the heel pretty hard. They had riblets, which, as you know, are ribs with the bones removed. So I was in a bit of a hurry. I understand. I understand. Um, now, uh, Milan Kundera um, leveled some pretty serious claims against you. I mean, do, you, do you want to respond to him in any, in any particular way? Milan Kundera is he's a friend. Oh. But I don't know if, I, if you could take what he says. He has a cup of the greatest. He's a simple man. I mean, the book of laughter and forgetting is just what he called Where's Waldo? 
he he's he he's a, a, a kind of a simpleton. I mean, I I I I, I, I he was one of my main cr- cr- critics. He's been very outspoken that that that, that your work is not only a, a direct ripoff of uh, his in, in the aesthetic of many other Latin American writers, but it's been translated into just the banal doldrums of American suburban life. Well, that may be true, but I, like I said, it deals with, with lost time. It deal, my work explores this very human question of having to examine where you came from in order to understand where you're going mm. because you don't even remember getting in the car. And you couldn't say if you've been driving for like 15 minutes... Or, or, or several hours, but everyone's honking, and now a nice policewoman's taking you home. Mm-hmm. I believe you're referring to the, the concept of highway hypnosis. Have, have you come across this term? Your, your, your face is scrunched up. Yeah, I, 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 highway hypnosis is one way to term it. I like to think of it as a, as a, a renumeration and a reflection of, of a life lived, perhaps not perfectly, but humanly um and sometimes i forget where i'm driving or when i got in a car or how the stick shift works i see so you mean to explain um mr redenbacher that while behind the wheel of a car you often forget how to operate the vehicle i think we're getting into into specifics now i i Yes, this happens to me a lot, but what I want you to take away from it is the metaphorical clout. Well, it's it's just that, metaphorical clout aside, uh, um, that sounds incredibly dangerous and as though your brain is deteriorating from the inside out. Dangerous to who? Dangerous to the other other cars on the road, the other drivers, your fellow man. When I'm driving a car, there's nobody else but me in the open road. And nothing bad has ever happened. A policewoman always takes me home and tells my daughter that she needs to keep a better eye on me. But what she doesn't know is that it's just a cleaning lady because I live alone. So when she goes, I get back in the Oldsmobile. Why don't we just take a step back here and um, begin at the beginning, uh, as it were. Uh, when were you born and, and, and where did you grow up? You're, you're a native of Minnesota, correct? I was born in a small town called Duluth mm. in 1922. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay, great. Uh, this I, makes you, I believe, uh, 77 years old. Wow. Good. Maybe. In addition to being if you a, say uh, it. In addition, in addition to being an accomplished literary critic, I'm also a, a math whiz. I'm pretty sure I'm just like, I'm just 35. Do you think it's the nineteen, the late nineteen fifties? Feels like it. Sometimes I go back and forth. I'm in and out. Oh, I, I understand. I I believe what you're describing is becoming abundantly clear. Sometimes it's nineteen fifty five. Sometimes it's nineteen seventy seven. Sometimes it's nineteen twenty two again, and I'm a little baby. Have you? Um, how recently have you been to the doctor? Been to the doctor. I don't go to the. Some, I they take me there. You know how you're just doing whatever you want, minding your own business, and then suddenly you're in a special car, and then suddenly you're at the doctor, and it's like a bed, but it's nicer than your bed. 
I, I, I'm familiar with that. Uh, yes. Anyway, um, these questions are getting very personal. I'd you, rather right, stick right. to the I, work. I, I would love to talk about your work because uh, there is there is so much. I mean, in your in your wide career, you have given us so much to, to to talk about, which is part of the fun of being a being a fan of yours, um, Mr. Redenbacher. I, I I want to ask you, um, when and how did you first encounter magical realism as a literary aesthetic, and what was it about it that resonated so much uh, with you? I'll, I mean, I'll tell you, it became my, my utter metier. It was the lens through which my life seems to make the most sense. Mm. Uh, but I first read Julio Cortazar's Hopscotch by mistake. Ah. Uh, some friends were, uh, and I were having a dispute about the rules of the game, and I got about 300 pages in before I realized it was not an official rule book published by the Pan American Hopscotch League. Uh, later on, I read Tent of Miracles, thinking it was about, like, like those pop-up kiosks at the mall where they sell phone cases. Uh, and it's funny. Jorge Amado later told me it's actually a satire of modern Brazilian institutions, both cultural and economic. Uh, but I still think the parts of it about the mall kiosks are good. Can I tell you something? Mm. Uh, it's just a personal anecdote, if I may. Please. Uh, uh, when I was in high school, um, I had a crush on a girl. Oh, cool. Yes, I know, I know. <laughs> something something your characters are quite familiar with, if I do say so. There's a lot of kissing in my books. And her mother worked at a mall kiosk at the local mall. Um, and um, I, I would go to the mall, and I would see that she was working there, and she would always regard me with a, a, a bit of what, what I believe we could describe as a stink eye. Huh. Um, I would love to read a book about a mall kiosk in which that person working that is good and not a villain for me. Well, that's the beauty of a lot of my work, is that you can think about things that happened to you in the past, and just without conscientiously doing so, or being accountable to them at all, just change them to things you think sound better, or might have been nicer. Hmm. Yeah, so much fiction, I think, comes out of that impulse of, uh, I'm going to write exactly what happened to me, but make it uh, better this time, make it work out more in my favor. Well, yeah. So much contemporary fiction, I believe. It's funny you mention uh, a friend's mom. Mm. Uh, well, our good friend Jose Pacheco. Yes. He of the big heels. He wrote Battles in the Desert. He I did. mean, that's just it's a, a, just a story about trying to kiss your friend's mom, and then they put you in a mental institution, which happened to me verbatim. Are you are accusing Pacheco of ripping off your life story? I'm just saying... I'm just saying, I told my best friend's mom that I wanted to take her, I, I wanted to take her, you know, to the roller rink. Next thing I know, I'm in a mental institution. Next thing I know, they're telling me that there never was a mom. And I go to this building complex and they're never, they never lived there. And that's the entire plot of that book. Mm. Who knows? You you wanted to take her to the roller rink? I, in Duluth, that's the, just the sort of thing where sure. the place you go. Well, I, I'm I still so go glad there you, now because oh, you, you can do. move real slow. Oh, I, in circles. You know what my favorite part of the roller rink is? Mm. The uh, the arcade games that don't work. Oh, absolutely. But like you, but you you're, can... you're skating around and you think, I think I'll like to take a break just because I've been going in the same circle for yeah. 45 minutes. Uh -huh. Oh, good. They've got Galaga. I'm going to go play Galaga for just a little bit. Then I'll be ready to skate again. Mm -hmm. And then you go over and there's like a weird exposed patch of electricity that if you touch it and you touch a nearby pole, it shocks you really bad. 
and the game doesn't work, and you just keep putting quarters in. Quarter after quarter after quarter, thinking maybe this is the magic ticket. Do you get the quarters back? No, no, no. They keep going they, into the machine. Mm. And then meanwhile, I'm asking my mom for money. I'm saying, give me another dollar to put into the change machine. And I just keep feeding this thing quarters under the deluded belief that it will one day work for me. And I like to think that that has become the metaphor for the rest of my entire life. Putting quarters into a machine that is not going to work. Mr. Spaulding, have you ever thought about writing a really, really long book with no chapters? Why, well, I, I, I've considered it, of course. That's pretty good. It's flattering coming from you, Quarters. Mr. Barker. You're right. It's a good. It's a good premise. Thank you. Anyway, the roller rink. Well, I. The thing is, I went there as a child. I go there now too. Uh. Uh, I need to get some exercise according to my doctor and uh, uh, aqua aerobics remind me too much of my life at sea. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, it, you know, it, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. What was this life at sea that you, uh, that you, that, that remind, the aqua aerobics, what does that remind you of? What is the particular trauma? I was once on a carnival cruise for six weeks by mistake. Oh, that's your life at sea? Yeah. Uh, I got my hotel room confused with a boiler closet, and they didn't find me when switching over Carnival Cruises. So I went on about four in a row. And uh, no one ever noticed I was there because I got that special thing where uh, you think nighttime is the daytime. So I spent my whole day Walking on the docks, thinking I was tanning, but simply pacing around under the cold moonlight of the Asiatic, and then returning to my boiler room where uh, no supervision was administered to me until around week six or seven, I fell off, was pulled back in in a shrimping net and once determined to not be shrimp given to the local Costa Rican authorities. And you can't do aqua aerobics now because it reminds me too much of that shrimp net. A human's motion through a big net of shrimp Mm. is very similar to uh, the same kind of resistance you get in the water. Well, tell me about being a young boy in Duluth, Minnesota in the, in the 30s and 40s, because, uh, you know, you mentioned this, and it, it's, it strikes me that you were uh, perhaps a, a tad older, but um, contemporaries with the other great poet from Minnesota, uh, Bob Dylan. Oh, uh, Did you right. encounter him at all as, as, a, as a boy? I mean, he was the coolest kid in school, captain of the football team, captain Bob of the Dylan, team. Bob Dylan was captain of the football team. Mm-hmm. In in Duluth, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. He said he tried to uh he tried to reject being the captain and say this captainship to, uh, belongs to all of us on the football team. I say us figuratively. I was uh I worked at the hot dog stand. Yes. 
back then that was an extracurricular you could do was work at the hot dog stand, and right. it, was, it had similar clout. The way students now might uh, be a teacher's age for a period. Exactly. You could work as a hot dog stand. I'm, I'm familiar with it, yes. Um, so, I mean, yeah, he was everyone. He was beloved by all walks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the popular kids, uh, the guys. Really? The drama kids. He wasn't just like a little weirdo? No. Like a skinny little weirdo with a moppy He was very handsome. He had a square jaw. What? The, was he ripped? He was pretty taut. Um, Bob Dylan was like a meathead? No. Oh, he was very down-to-earth and charismatic, but physically, he was like a... Like a, like a like a side of ham you mm. see hanging in a in a in a bodega on the outskirts of of of, of a Catalonian uh, bordello. Mm. Very striking image. Yeah, I mean, if we get back to the literature, I mean, that's what my stuff's all about. It's, it's true. I, I, just, I don't uh, come up here to talk about Bobby Zimmerman, the coolest Zimmerman, the coolest kid in school, who gave his prom king crown to the kid with cerebral palsy, which no one knew, but I also had cerebral palsy. Just no one could tell because my mom made me wear a big gown. So I don't like talking how, about that. How are you? Are you? Are you? And you? You've lived to seventy-seven. <laughs> you look incredible. You know, I think I've said about it all I want to say about cerebral I, I, palsy. Of course, I understand. I understand. I, of course, we're here to talk about your work. It's just. It's just that you've lived such a fascinating life, and I, 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 I will pepper questions about it throughout rather than dwelling on them. I, I apologize. I apologize. Um, getting back, let's let's talk about your work then. I mean, do you Thank have you. do you have um, sort of a, a writing process or a series of rituals that you undergo um, each time? You know, there are some writers who who um, really really fetishize this process and uh, uh, claim that they can only create under these very exacting circumstances, like. They're in their office and they have all these different colored pens and they write in one character with, with a blue pen and then the other character with a green pen. Is that you? No. Uh, no. Maybe that works for class presidents uh, like Julio Cortazar or whatever, but it doesn't work for me. I'll tell you my process. You, uh, the life of a writer is simultaneously very disciplined but also uh, very unstructured. Uh, so, you know, in the rainy season, I'll wake up with the dawn mm. and take a Spartan breakfast of, of those, those little Jimmy Dean bowls where you just put an egg in there and then, you know, you make it cook, you make it do cook. And then it comes out and it's like a little egg bowl. And then, you know, my day is my own. I'll go to the Best Buy and ask what the difference between usb and mini usb is make the teenager there explain it to me over and over nodding but never really understanding because if you ask me regular usbs are already pretty small so i i don't under you know i'll play the one level of crash bandicoot they have on the playstation that's like behind glass there i'll think about the past i'll go to panera and that's my goddamn house Make a scene and repeatedly demand of the teenage cashier, why stop at bread bowls? Why not bread everything? Uh, I'll leave, get on the bus. 
I'll make the, the bus driver go through the whole song and dance of lowering that special platform so I can get on, even though I'm perfectly mobile. I'm just old and feel like, uh, I don't know, that makes me good or something. Like bad people die early and good people die later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and through that process, I'm able to form cohesive narratives about my life as a person, the life of a of a Minnesotan mm. as part of a broader community and a broader culture. Yes. About how our mores and our 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 petty needs compel us to reenact cycles mm. in, initiated by father figures and grandfather figures and what how. Mm. Uh how those cycles are both destructive and restorative. Um, and how, I don't know, how hard it is to tie your shoes sometimes. Well, this this prompts another question that I had for you. Is that it, 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 There's sort of no clear answer when discussing your work. Um, where do you fall on the, the contrast, you know, the, the line in the sand, so to speak, between... Authors who write very much there, they fictionalize sort of their own experience than exaggerate. Take your Philip Roth, for example. So many of those are not autobiographical in so much as the details of the story, but certainly in the tone and emotional truth. Um, versus the, these artists who prefer instead to get into the mind of someone completely foreign from themselves. Like, just like, just like Tom Wolfe, for example, who's, who's, uh, who's experienced writing The Man in Full... Um, could not be more foreign from his own. I mean, do you think there's an inherent value in one over the other, or do they sort of coexist on the same vague literary plane? Uh, I, I, I think I have my foot in both camps. Um, all of my books are essentially about me, mm. right, mm. and my life, mm. and my reflections of that life. But then, sometimes... It's me, right? But then if I'm like, wouldn't it have been cool if instead I uh, drove a submarine? And then I spend about two weeks in a fugue state, perhaps, where I'm wearing a submarine captain's hat, which is the same as a terrestrial boat captain's hat. I guess terrestrial is not the right word, but you understand what I mean. Yes, yes. Your yes. traditional boat, an above, hat. an above water boat. When captains made the transition for above water to below water, there's no reason to change the hat, Mister Spaulding. Uh huh. So I'll wear one of those. Now, do you mind if I interrupt you for just a moment and ask you what are the, these these rumors that you're a committed member of Sea Org? Sea Org. Are you familiar? This is the uh, um, this is what uh, what's the name of the gentleman who founded Scientology? Wow. And do your name? research. His name's L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard, that he, that he was just like living. I wouldn't, he's a friend. I wouldn't call him a best friend, but he's a good friend. He's a good friend. Do you hang out? You and L. Ron Hubbard? No. <laughs> Nuh-uh. All right, so I guess the rumors are unfounded then, that you were a member of Sea Org for many years. Never ask me about that again. Okay? Yeah, understood. understood. Guess what, Mr. Spaulding? What you do under the sea is not litigatable. And frankly, 
as a man who both went in and came out alive of a big net of shrimp, I don't think you should be asking me probing questions about my time at sea. On the contrary, uh, uh, Mr. Redenbacher, I think as a public figure, you have a duty, nay, a responsibility to fill in these enormous swaths of your background, whereas where you seem to disappear from public life for many years and come back with all these tattoos and uh, with dead, yes, I'll say, with dead people in your wake? In my wake? When you say wake, do you mean a metaphorical, like, behind me, or the literal wake that a boat makes when it moves real fast in the I water? I mean both. I mean the last time... That you, this is this is publicly, this is documented in the New Yorker magazine. That the last time you set, you reached port, right in the Great Lakes, near yeah, where I you sailed lived. to the Great you, Lakes. No, no, you sailed around the Great Lakes and come back. There were dead bodies floating behind the boat. As my experiences on the car- Carnival cruise lines prove, a life at sea is a dangerous life. If you're sign a contract binding you to eternal service to a celestial figure, you cannot really comprehend, and you die in that service receiving no money, and your fingerprints have been burned off, and your belly is just as full of fish as a... Well, you've been eating a lot of fish based on an autopsy. I don't think I have to defend that or explain that. So you live live in St. Paul. Yeah, I live in St. Paul. It's a nice life. Mm-hmm. It's a respectable life. I live in the Bohemian district of St. Paul. Do you um do you consider yourself part of a um a literary scene there? Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's like I said, the Bohemian district of St. Paul, which is just where we, you know, we literary types uh just started hanging out naturally cuz it cause it has a target which they can't kick you out of even if it's closing. Mm. These are the guys I pay, play pinochle with, etc. They don't write as much, but uh, I, I mean, I do have a, also a, a kinship with other writers that are also producing work right mm. now. You know, veterans and new guys. Uh, Roberto Bolaño and I, we both write a lot about sleeping on roofs. I assume for the same reason. Uh, da da da. Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Has always been a sated rival and an enemy. Ah, uh, yes. But he is a. Uh, uh, we are in the same circles. Mm. Well, I, I'm so happy that you you brought up Gabriel Garcia Marquez because I think he is. Um, he's perhaps the writer from whom. Now, this is not me saying this. Mm-hmm. This is your critics. Your critics would say that he is perhaps the writer from whom you've stolen the most. How? Just in terms of the general aesthetic. Um, uh, I, I believe your your um, your your book, uh, um, the Winter of the Old Man, was just a very poor take on the autumn of the patriarch. Poor, poor take of the autumn of the patriarch. Just because the sentences in my book were even longer, several pages of just one sentence. Well, it just see it just seems like a a. A, like a one for one, like story topping. Like there's a colonel in the autumn of the patriarch, and yours is the general. Well, okay. Well, well, love in the time of cholera is a direct ripoff of my novel, Hookup Culture, in the Mesothelioma Ward. So there's that. So who's copying who? 
I don't like him. I don't like his mustache. Mm-hmm. I don't like a hundred years of solitude was it's just a, a book about one town where stuff keeps changing, which I hate, by the way. It's scary. It's just a, it was just a big Richard scary with no pictures. And the worm in the Apple helicopter is us, the audience. So that's how I feel about old Gabe. I don't like him. Um, have you had any any personal interactions with uh, with Mark Heads um, to sort of I don't know exercise this feud? Have you have you spoken to him at all? You just don't respect his work, or you think he's also a jerk? I met him once. It was a pitch meeting. Oh, mm. a pitch meeting to um the TV networks. Yeah. The TV networks wanted a big show, and they were <laughs> they were looking for something that was maybe inspired by the kind of um, colorful and emotionally resonant uh, magical realism works that were so in vogue at the time, and no one told me about it, but I happened to be at the same Red Lobster that it was going on in. So, basically, I'm talking to, to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, I, interrupting him, by the way, as he was talking to these suits. Mm. And he's eating a big goblet of ceviche, just like... He was a, a notoriously pig-like eater. He That's how he was very svelte, but he ate like a little tiny piggy. Um, nom, nom, nom. And you know about ceviche, you have it served in these, you know, these reasonable small servings. But he would just eat troughs, troughs of it. Mm. And he said to me, uh, he said to me, hey, <laughs> aren't you that puta viejo who wrote that book about a bunch of old people having sex, even though they're really sick? And I wrote, yeah, yeah, so... Uh, it's a book I wrote, not a dream I have, and then just then just translating spoke the about dream. ad nauseum into a tape recorder. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he said that's the idea is so good. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it myself. And I was like, you can hey, you can't do that, man. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me, got real close up in the eye, and these suits in the background, they were just watching. Yeah, they were kind of like, you know, maybe this wasn't a good idea. He leans up to me and he said, I'm Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I can do whatever I want. No one's going to believe you. And then he hit me in the head. He said no one's going to believe you? Yeah, he said. So uh, um, this actually, this story corroborates uh, a lot of um, uh, unconfirmed sightings of Gabriel Garcia Marquez later in life where he would go around Brooklyn and pretend to be the bartender at a bar. And no matter what people would order, he would just give them a shot of tequila. And then he would do things like pop up at people's weddings and like be in their photos or like photobomb people and just be like, I'm Gabriel Garcia Marquette. No one's going to believe you. Yeah. He was a big photobomber. He's a big, uh, he just like would just have these weird little cameos. Like um, uh, he would just sort of pop up in like movies and people would be like, what's up? I was like Garcia, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Like that's, huh? Yeah. And uh, it's weird I, because I, he I, just has this sort of universally, like this universal public love. Mm-hmm. But I don't understand what he's ever done. Mm-hmm. 
or like why well, he's so smug. Well, people loved him in Caddyshack. True, he was very good in Caddyshack. Okay, I don't want to talk about Gabriel anymore. Okay, okay. The Dalai Lama himself. Remember when Gabriel Garcia Marquez said that in Caddyshack? Yeah, the Dalai Lama himself. It was very, it was very droll. It was very kind of a, a subtle wit that we all could really ga- laugh at. Stupid Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, now you 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 are about to embark on on yet another book tour um, for your latest novel, from which you read at the top of this program. Mm-hmm. And uh, you are known for, perhaps more so than your contemporaries, um, being a creature of the book signing. Uh, I you enjoy giving lectures um, at the Ninety Second Street Y. Um, you know you're you're operating in this uh, Dickensian mode of of performing your work for an audience, in addition to having it read on the page. I think it's important for people to see uh, who these narratives are coming from. Mm. I also think it's important for people to know that I'm writing books still and am alive, mm-hmm. and also used to write books. And I'm a published author, which yes. nobody seems to really know as much anymore. Yeah. Um, so I'm doing a book tour of every Walden books in every airport mm. in America. Uh, it's not booked. I just go. Yeah. Um, and you, you set up a little chair. I set up a chair and I just start reading from my from my book. And then people, if people want to buy the book or have their book signed or what have you, um, well, we, I, I, I had to tell, give them the address of the, of, of the warehouse, uh, of the printer's warehouse because um, certain checks did not clear and I have 5,000 copies of my book lying dormant uh, in a hangar in Bogota, uh, cut and ready to go, but uh, because of certain labor movements down there, undeliverable. So if you want my new book, you got to come with me to Bogota. Which also, when I say come with me, I'm not going down there. So you're going to have to go. Go and bring it back. Yeah. And then you'll sign it. And actually, if you do that, could you bring a couple? Just so everyone doesn't have to go. You know? um, I'm sure you don't remember this. (laughs) But if if you would permit me um, to just tell a, a brief personal story, um, I actually, uh, as a young uh, a student, uh, met you um, on one of your book tours. Um, it was in uh, it was in it was in it was at Oxford University um, in in England when I was uh, when I was uh, uh, getting my fourth doctorate there when I was thirteen. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, I, I came up to you and I said, I had, I, my voice was changing, so it was cracking a bunch. And I, I, I just said, uh, 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 Mr. Redenbogger, uh, uh, sir, um, I, I've read uh, 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 everything you've ever done. And uh, I, I just, and then you, you, you reached across the table and you put one finger on my mouth and you went, shh, 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 shh. I don't give a shit. <laughs> and then you signed my book and it said, good luck, loser, uh, XOXO Hank. I gotta tell you, Mr. Spalding, that's a very sweet story. It is, right? That's I mean, very I, tender. I, I tell it constantly. That's really, really nice. Just, it was just the kind of tough love that I needed as a fragile, bookish young boy. Mm-hmm. You know? And after that, I started boxing. 
I went to a boxing gym. It's funny because I don't a hundred percent remember ever being in England because um well, because of my fight with Graham Greene. Oh yes. Uh and what we, we so we met in the British quarter of of Istanbul mm. during its its transition after the war and uh, basically, after a uh, a back alley Beyblades battle, gone south. Yes, he uh went to the the consulate there and had me banned from not just Great Britain but uh any and all of what was the what was once the British Empire. Mm. So I can't go to the Punjab. Uh, I can't go to. Most of Australia, uh, certain quarters of Hong Kong, most quarters of the good quarters of Hong Kong, where you can get the chickens, like the whole chicken, you know, mm. to do with what you will. Mm-hmm. So because of that, I mean, listen, I'll tell you right now, Mr. Spalding, I, I went to the Punjab. Mm-hmm. I mean, hello, I'm not going to not go. But kind of out of spite, I was like, am I going to ever go to England? Like, no thanks. But I guess I was in Oxford, Mm -hmm. which means who could it have been? Hmm. Maybe I was porking Graham Greene's wife. Wouldn't that be cool? I'll just write and say that I did. Well, you know, that's we have um, a few minutes left in the show. So I I want to um, uh, uh, bring that up uh, again, which is a topic we we spoke about at the beginning, um, which is. Forgive me, but uh, your seemingly rapidly deteriorating mental health, mm. um, and I don't mean, you know, your anxiety. I mean the very, very clear signs of very of dementia that has progressed very far. Right. I mean, for example, um, it, it's the year night. It, Beyblades. Beyblades won't exist for another several years. <laughs> it was Beyblades that we had a fight over. We had a fight over him. His scuffed mind. There are certain rules when you're having a Beybey battle, battle, and even though they're allowed to touch, you can't use metal tip ones in a street game. You can't do it. Um, I also want to ask you about um the woman in like a cartoonish one flew over the cuckoo's nest nurse uniform who's been sitting next to you the whole time. You've been in the studio? This is my wife. I, she's shaking her head like it's not her. Well? Like that's not what she is. I'm wearing a wedding band, aren't I? You're wearing one on each finger and on they each... They make me stronger. And on each toe. You're barefoot. They align my chakras. Okay. That, that, that's, she's nodding about that. Listen... Whatever my wife or my mom or uh, my second grade teacher, whoever this lady is, and she's shifting between the three she's, rapidly in she's, my... She's taking your blood pressure right now. She's it's got, high. I'm stressed out. I didn't realize... I thought this was going to be a puff piece. I feel like I've been attacked several steps along the way here. Well, it's just it's a long-form interview to promote your new novel. Did Pacheco put you up to this? But no. Did, listen, man, 
that guy can go stick his heels into some hot water and get the hell over it, all right? I was in a rush for some riblets. All right, she's now dabbing your forehead with a wet cloth. Like a boxer. That's me. Oh, right. I am the boxer. Uh, uh, Mr. Spaulding. All right, we're going to go. Go ahead, go ahead. No, well, tell me where we're going to go. We're, it's time for our lightning round questions. Okay, do it. What did you have for breakfast this morning? A Jimmy East Dean's little egg bowl. What are you going to have for lunch after this is over? Soup. What are you going to have for dinner later? Soup. What's your... <laughs> What's your favorite midnight snack? Hey, Mr. Spalding, I'll give you one big guess. Uh-huh. Guess. Go on. Um, ice cream? Nutella. If you but could, watered down to the consistency of soup. If you could swap bodies with any person and just live out the rest of their life, who would it be? A big whale. Do you, um, when you do karaoke, do you prefer an open bar or a private room? I like a private room. I think it's more fun. You can lay down. Mm. You know, sing Delta Dawn over and over. Mm-hmm. Be by yourself with no friends. Mm-hmm. Room for sure. All right, last lightning question. Israel mm. or Palestine? It's one big country, Mr. Spaulding. As best as I know. Don't you just mean the Near East? Mm-hmm. What is your favorite word? Ham. <laughs> 